We're continuing our Safely Home series today. Uh, this month we've been talking about the captivity of the children of Israel in Babylon as uh, predicted by Jeremiah. And then he gives them some instructions as to what they're supposed to be doing. Our perspective on this is to kind of understand how we have a commonness with the children of Israel who were taken into captivity as they were first confused and then compromised, as we've been talking about so far this year. And this month, we are kind of examining the common things that we are captivated by. Now, you might be thinking, well, you know, that was way back in the day. They didn't have the same things that we have. But they did have the same thing we have called sin. And sin is always the key component when it comes to how Satan likes to captivate us. And so we're going to look at an example of how that works today by talking about how we can be victorious victims and position ourselves in our slavery, situate ourselves in the right way. But let me tell you a story, but let's try something different today. I've been, you know, giving you the story, an example of what it might have looked like back then and uh, how it's common to what's going on with uh, today. But I'm going I'm to change things up today. I've always dreamed about being a prophet. So I'm going to be a prophet today. I'm going to foretell for you, prophesy for you what we can expect as a church, as clans, and as a community of believers in a post-Christian, post-modern, neo-pagan culture. We live in that era right now, according to the experts. I don't know that if I agree with that completely or fully. But the fact of the matter is, is we have to deal with our circumstance with wisdom and with honesty. And if we have entered into a neo-pagan culture where we have completely uh, stopped uh, serving uh, the truth that we find in God's Word and His systems and structures. We don't want to live by those any longer. And we're substituting those with our own pagan ideas, our own kind of mystical or um, uh, ideas that come from our own hearts and our own minds without His wisdom, then we are in a pagan, uh, a pagan era. Now, if you want to learn more about this, just go back into our archives of sermons, and we had a sermon about paganism not too long ago. Just look into that one, and it'll explain that a little bit further. Now, if you missed last week's message, you can also go online and check it out as we talk in detail about this area in which we are living right now. Now, it's not what I want to envision for our future. This is not my preference, of course, and it's not what I would hope for personally. I really hope this doesn't happen. Or that I believe in absolutely, because I know that God can change things. But based upon the principles and patterns we observe in Jeremiah, and the modern day examples of the application of those patterns and principles, and how they manifested in culture so far, here's what I see for the American church or clans and community of believers. For the church... I think as I prophesy, and I do this tongue-in-cheek, and God knows my heart, so he knows this is a little bit mischievous today. But as a prophet, I prophesy that as, a tradi as traditional Judeo-Christian religion is vilified by progressive, enlightened, superior thinkers who have never proven their ideas are legitimate or even lasting, the church will be forced to migrate in one of two directions— the progressive church will migrate to the side of appeasement and acceptance as it emphasizes innocuous unity and dismisses the biblical concepts of sin and salvation. 
because it will seek to find harmony with those in the pagan culture who have blamed the church for making them feel ostracized or fallen by talking about what sin is. The traditional church, though, on the other side, it will move back toward accountability and authenticity as it emphasizes biblical principles and patterns, but will become less legalistic and more loving in its approach to the lost. It will seek to find healing for those who realize they've been captivated by cultural and philosophical lies by engaging personally and professionally in ministries that will help them find freedom. And this is my hope for the church, is that we will not just dismiss Scripture in favor of finding a sense of um, uh, familiarity with culture, but that we will emphasize Scripture so that we will be able to find unity through Christ. As far as the clans are concerned, as traditional family values and the sanctity of marriage are voided by social reengineers who are driven by self-centered aggrandizement and who want to redefine family in terms of social constructs instead of biological connections, clans will be divided among, along political lines, forcing them to characterize those in their families with whom they disagree on social issues as disconnected from reality or deviant of heart. They will be driven away from each other on issues of gender identity, sexual orientation, and shameless promiscuity, compelling those who hold to Christian values based upon Scripture to be censored as unscientific and unsophisticated. Clans who hold true to scriptural family values and the sanctity of marriage will retreat to pockets around the country in which they can excel in safe havens, while clans who hope to re-envision and recreate America in their godless image will gravitate to centers of power where they can secure their specious ideologies, enforced laws, and litigations. This will spawn the genesis of another civil war in which brother will fight against brother, even to the point of shedding of blood. What about the community? Well, as traditional community standards are vacated by radical extremists who threaten violence and legal action against any who question racial equality or any form of social injustice, our communities will become polarized by disintegrationists bent on burning down the systems and structures which have served us for two centuries. Some in our communities, mostly the young and impressionable, will gravitate towards public figures who promise fairness but can only deliver fascism. They will find their community of revolutionaries gathering on social media platforms which can speculate and accuse without recourse and who sway public opinion with heartless condemnation. And this will motivate others who have a heart towards historical and traditional stability to congregate in whatever community activities which bring them comfort and confidence. They will be drawn to others of like mind who don't want to reclaim, who don't want to reclaim their country by force or violence, but will do so if necessary, as allowed by our founding fathers. And as with clans, communities will face the prospect of civil conflict as identity politics become the arbiter of what is in the nation's best interest. Now, is our country, our community, on the brink of such division 
such civil war? It could speed towards that if the church doesn't carefully admit our situation and position ourselves in captivity to shift from being victims to victors. The only thing that can prevent this era, this neo-pagan era culture we live in, to go further into the abyss is for the church to rise up and to revive and to present itself in the truths of God in the best way possible. Because if we don't learn from the exiles in Babylon, as instructed by Jeremiah, that it is time to acknowledge we are victims of the law of sin, and as a community have become captive to it, then we will never transition and transform our position into victory through the law of the Spirit. Jeremiah details the reality of the captivity in Jeremiah 52. So as we've been reading through Jeremiah, you'll have to we'll know that we're going through a 40-year period, a transition. And really, from the time of the first uh, uh, deportation, there's about 23 years and so about a quarter of a century when uh, Daniel goes into captivity before the very last ones go into captivity and are deported. Jeremiah is now talking in Jeremiah 52 after that last deportation. He is offering a finality, kind of a a final postscript to what has happened. He says there in Jeremiah 52 verse 12, that on the 10th day of the 5th month in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, commander of the imperial guard who served the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal place, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. Remember that. He burned down. The whole Babylonian army under the commander of the imperial guard broke down. Remember that. Broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar, the commander of the guard, carried into exile some of the poorest people and those who remained in the city, along with the rest of the craftsmen and those who had deserted to the king of Babylon. But Nebuchadnezzar left behind the rest of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and the fields. Thus comes the conclusion of Jerusalem and the temple. The temple was burned down. The city, the walls were broken down. So in verse 27, Jeremiah gives us a picture, kind of a, uh, a report of sorts of what happened. So Judah went into captivity away from her land. This is the number of people Nebuchadnezzar carried into exile. In the seventh year, 3,023 Jews, Daniel and others. In Nebuchadnezzar's 18th year, 832 people from Jerusalem, uh, probably Ezekiel and others. And in his 23rd year, 745 Jews were taken into exile by Nebuzardan, the commander of the imperial guard. There were 4,600 people in all. Now, experts say that this probably just represents men. And so if you add children and women, that there might be more of a closer to a 20,000 total. Now, my question was 20,000 or 18,000 of how many? There are some who believe, some experts who think that the, the population of Jerusalem at the time of the first siege would have been around 120,000 people. Now, we don't think that that's a very big city when we think about size, but 
Uh, Jerusalem, would, if you compare the size of the city in that day as far as uh, acreage, it would just be a small portion of one of our bigger cities. One person went to all the trouble of trying to do the math on this, and he came to the conclusion that it was an eighth of the people that were living in Jerusalem before the first exile. One-eighth ended up in Babylon. That means seven-eighths were either left behind or killed in this process. Now, I know it's hard for us to get our heads around what this means, but you have to kind of understand this from the context of everything they knew to be true. They believed the temple was going to last forever. That's because they weren't listening to what, a, what uh, Solomon, King Solomon had predicted 400 years before. He said that they would be taken into captivity on the day that they uh, inaugurated the temple. And they also believed that the city of Jerusalem would never fall, that it was impenetrable. It had walls that were high. It had all kinds of safety features, security mechanisms, and Jerusalem fell. In the city, walls were broken down. The temple was burned down. The walls broken down. So what Jeremiah is recording here for us is the finality of God's judgment on his people by detailing the captivity of the remnant and the consequences of their communal sin exacted on the rebellious, their temple and the city of Jerusalem. He makes it clear that they can no longer hide in their delusions by, making the very by marking the very day that God fulfills His promise of judgment. Jeremiah illustrates for us how the law of sin captivates God's people in real life. But also, he plant, God plants the seed of grace, even in the fierce judgment which the law of the Spirit can nurture into restoration and victory. And therein lies the lesson for us, this seed of grace. This is an important lesson for us because the post-Christian, post-modern, neo-pagan era in which we live gives us clarity because it too establishes a demarcation. As I tried to illustrate in my prediction or prophecy, we can no longer hide in the shadows of assumption as the Jews did while there was a temple and city standing because our own temple has or is being burned down and our own city has or is being torn down or at least the process of these destructive measures has begun. The exiles are examples to us that we are victims of sin working in us but also victors when we confess or admit what frees us. And that was the whole point of this judgment of God to the captives. Just admit what truly frees you. Our temple has been a culture defined by Christian morals. And our city has been a constitution that delineates our inalienable rights. That's my comparison. And I fear that our temple of morals is being burned down and our city of God-given rights is being broken down by secret agents of the law of sin, as was Nebuchadnezzar, who ordered the temple in, in Jerusalem and Jerusalem to be completely destroyed so God's people would serve his imperial desires alone. Little did Nebuchadnezzar know 
that God would humble him eventually and elevate his chosen people for the purpose of restoration, that Nebuchadnezzar himself would be conquered by the Medes and the Persians, and the Persians would then send the Israelites back to reestablish their city and their temple. And I believe with all my heart that is why we must carefully admit our situation. We must admit how personally we have positioned ourselves in this circumstance of captivity as victims so that we can become victors as the children of Israel did in their captivity in Babylon. Now let me, if I can explain this with a New Testament perspective. The Apostle Paul explained this process which can be applied in every circumstance this way. For in my inner being, uh, this is from uh, Romans 7, verse 22. He says, For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, and make me a, making me a prisoner, which means captive, of the law of sin at work within me. He says, What a wretched man that I am! Who will rescue me from me? Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord, he says. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. He continues in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul is summarizing how it is that no matter what situation you find yourself in, we will be in a position of slavery at times. And I'm not trying to exactly compare what's happening here in America with what happened to the children of Israel during the days of their captivity. But there are enough commonalities for us at least to admit that our culture has drifted back into the law of sin dominating it and not the law of the Spirit. Last Sunday, we talked about our current circumstance of captivity. And if, you, if I just want to remind you, on the back of the bulletin are all these verses, the, the, the references, and kind of the outline of what we're talking about today. You can use that as a devotional guide this week. It will help you as you follow along today. But last Sunday, as we talked about our current circumstance of captivity, that we should assess that we are physically captivated by imperial forces controlling us through fleshly indulgence to serve their godless interests. This is what Paul describes as the law of sin. And God regulates the work of sin which wages war against the restrictions we have in our own minds by captivating us with carnal desires that are in work within us all the time. The job of the imperial forces of our day, which seek to enslave us, is by monetizing us to fool us into seeking and satiating our pleasures through technological platforms tainted with their hollow and de deceptive philosophies instead of being obedient to God's word. 
They can control our social interactions, our sexual intimacies, our shopping interests, and even our societal involvements by captivating us with images and ideologies which foster the law of sin in each of us. We might look at technology and go, wow, that's great. It's wonderful. Well, it can be a wonderful tool. But I hope you realize that Satan is pushing some of the buttons in order to entice us back into paganism through the law of sin. And as the Jews were taken into exile because they backslid into paganism, we are in a period of possible exile because we are doing the same. That's the commonality that I see. That's why we must carefully admit our position in captivity so that we can situate ourselves to go from being a victim of what's going on in the law of sin to a victor. Because we admit we are living in a post-Christian, post-modern, neo-pagan kingdom that is manipulated by evil imperial powers. They have no interest in our serving God. Their only interest is in our serving them. Now the only way we can prevent a civil war or the further fracturing of our churches our clans and our communities is by rising and defending the cause of God's people as did Esther, Queen Esther. Esther, encouraged by her cousin Mordecai, stood up in the face of death for such a time as this to save the Jews. She did that at her own peril. You remember the story? Uh, Queen Vashti is... Uh, forsaken by the king, so he looks for a new one, and Esther's presented to him, and he thinks that Esther's all that in a bag of chips. He marries her. Uh, she becomes his uh, primary queen. But she could only come in once a month or so to see him. And if she came in when she was not summoned, it would be her head on the line, or she might be impaled if he did not uh, welcome her to his presence. I know, it was a very misogynistic time back then. But don't get lost in that part of the story. Evil Haman, and when I say Haman, I just say, hey, Haman. He, uh, he uh, hatches a plot, like others had done against Daniel, to try to catch the Jews worshiping God alone. And so he says and gets up an army, and, and uh, the king is fooled into thinking that they're, the Jews are against the king. And so he gives Haman permission to go and slaughter all the Jews, so to speak. So Mordecai says, you got to go talk to the king about it. So Esther goes in and, uh, and reveals to the king what's going on. And through a course of action, Haman is exposed. He ends up being impaled. Mordecai is uh, elevated to a high position of authority in the kingdom because Esther had the guts to go in and stand for her people, her perspective, her story. Now Christians today... We must be like Esther. We must be willing to stand in truth. We must be willing for such a time as this to stand up in the face of death. To defend and rise, rise up and defend the eternal biblical truths of God. His story, his plan for his people, even in the face of death. We must become modern-day apologists. 
as described in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 through 16, which says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander, and they will be. We must do this in our churches and in the church as those believers who become disenchanted with progressive ideas have a place to return home. We are the guideposts, the guidebooks, and the guidelines Jeremiah told us to establish last week. We must do this in our clans to provide a point of unity, of purpose, to overcome the polarization caused by politics within our families because love and truth always went out. And we must do this in our communities because only the unity of spirit through the bond of peace can resolve any social injustices that our community might have. But we must be willing to stand up in the face of death or even being marginalized. Why? Because if God is for us, who can be against us? Of whom should I be afraid? I admire some of the younger people, and when I say younger, I'm 60 now, so it's any in the first five decades of your life. But one that I find interesting is Alicia Childers, and I've mentioned her before. She has a, a podcast uh, that I look at on occasion that I find on YouTube when I'm doing some of my work there for our stuff. But she was one of these uh, millennials who, or Xers who became disenchanted with the church. She started following after the progressive ideas of culture in the church. And then she realized how empty those things were. And then she became one of the apologists for the truth of Jesus Christ. You can get her book. It's not very long. Read it. It's called Another Gospel. You can be encouraged by her story, but also in the midst of telling the story, she break da breaks down some of the law of sin efforts that are being made right now to draw us back into paganism. But the point here is that we must admit that we are victims of the law of sin, that all around us we find imperial forces who want to enslave us. That we can no longer live under the delusion that this world is ours to be peaceful in and just enjoy because we're believers. There is a burning down of the temple. There is a breaking down of the city. We must also admit not only that we are victims, but we have to admit that we're victors. And we cannot move out of victimization until we deal with the victory of the law of the Spirit that is work within us. <laughs> Paul says there is no condemnation because Jesus has set us free from the law, of, has set us free through the law of the Spirit. It is the law of the Spirit that was expressed in the constitutional protections of our inalienable rights for us. So we must reposition ourselves as victors in this culture of a post-Christian, post-modern, neo-pagan captivity. 
Paul simply says that the law of the Spirit has overcome the law of sin and death. And all we got to do is live in the Spirit. Now, that doesn't seem hard to do, pretty simple. What does it mean to live in the Spirit? Well, Galatians tells us it means love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and all those fruits of the Spirit. It also details what it means to live in the law of sin as well. If you want to look those up in Galatians 5, there at the end of the chapter. The truth of the matter is it doesn't matter what period we are in captivity if we choose if we choose as believers to live in accordance to in the spirit we are set free from the law of sin and death and we do that by simply living according to the spirit again fully recognizing the failure of living in the flesh which will give us the power to say no to all those imperial forces that are seeking to enslave us what's happening is because we are victims of the law of sin and we have not yet found our freedom through the law of the Spirit. We're allowing these imperial forces all around us to draw us and entice us back into paganism where we're trying to live our lives without God, secularly, without God. Now Daniel illustrated for us how you can serve the cause of God as you serve with dignity those in authority over you. He continued to pray. He continued to worship the one true God. He excelled in his duties for the sake of God, not his captors. He was held as captive, but he never allowed himself to be used as an instrument of sin. How many times did God bail Daniel out? Well, there was one big time. We all tell our kids the story of Daniel and the what? Lion's den. And how Daniel was cast to the lion's den for the lions to eat him up. And the king says it's because Daniel was praying to the Lord and not worshiping him. And in the morning, the king was terrified. He goes in and hopes against all hope because he loved Daniel secretly. I should say that in a different way these days. He loved Daniel in the right kind of way. Appreciated him. And Daniel was still alive because God closed the mouths of the lions. You may get thrown a lion's den if you stand up for the law of the Spirit. But God teaches us, like Daniel, we need to do our very best for those who are in authority over us properly while we still continue to serve the one true God. Daniel illustrated that for us. And like Daniel, we can refuse to be the instruments of slavery as Paul describes in Romans. He says there in Romans 6, 13, and listen carefully, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. Not your mind, not your eyes, not your mouth, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law of sin, but under grace, which is the law of the Spirit. What then shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves of sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of 
teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. The word allegiance is important if you miss my uh, promo for this week. Uh, I talk about reallocated allegiance. Disintegrationist, reallocated allegiance. I get them caught up in my head there. Let's try to say them too fast. But our allegiance has been reallocated to this world. But we've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. That's what it means when we realize we are in a position of slavery, of victims, but we can turn that into victory. And the only way we can prevent a civil war on, or further fracturing of our churches in this matter or our clans or our communities is by reviving and restoring our God-given rights as inalienable as detailed by the Constitution. Now, I'm not saying the Constitution of the United States is a biblical or, or sacred document in the sense that it's equal to Scripture. But what I am saying is that our founding fathers sought through the Constitution to protect that for us. Because the Constitution is like the city walls that protect us as a people. And that is why imperial forces will do all they can to break them down. But in our church and in the church, as we live by the law, directives of the Spirit, we obey the pattern of teaching about God given human rights with full allegiance and find our purpose in righteousness, then we can equip young people with the works of true service that will build them up. The Zillennials, I like calling them the Zillennials. They're the group that's after the Millennials. Call them Generation Z. They're primed right now for authentic righteousness and the church can be that vehicle in which, they, in which it is best driven. And when we think about the church and our, the importance that we are, that's why when we see young people in here, we should just go up and, well, don't, don't scare them, but tell them how much you appreciate them being in church every Sunday because this is a big ask for them. Because the rest of their friends, they're out doing all kinds of things. But in the church, we need to encourage our zillennials to stand up for this truth. And in our clans, in our families, we can find patriotic purpose as the common expression of our citizenry. But we must remind our family that it is God's blessing that has given us what we have and that we must continue to seek. And in our communities, we can rally together as a nation under God, which helps us see the heart and not the skin. The content of a person's character, as someone once said. And we do so because we call upon the name of the Lord. Is anybody familiar with the document called The Cause and Necessity of Taking Up Arms by Thomas Jefferson that was signed by John Hancock? It was an argument as to why... The revolution or why Americans, the newly formed American uh, people, had the right to keep and bear arms to fight against the tyrannical uh, government of England. Now, 
taking that away from just that the, the idea of the context here, but being about taking up arms, I want us to listen to Thomas Jefferson's words. They say he was a deist, that he didn't believe in God necessarily, or the the prescription of, of integrity of Scripture. But listen to what Thomas Jefferson writes about our being prepared. He starts by saying, Our cause is just. Our union is perfect. Our internal resources are great, and if necessary, foreign assistance is undoubtedly attainable. We gratefully acknowledge, as signal instances of the divine favor towards us, that His providence, that's God's providence, would not permit us to be called into this severe controversy until we were grown up to our present strength and had been previously exercised in warlike reflection or op, warlike operation, and possessed of the means of defending ourselves. With hearts fortified with these animating reflections, we most solemnly before God and the world declare that exerting the utmost energy of those powers which our beneficent Creator hath graciously bestowed upon us and the arms we have been compelled by our enemies to assume, we will, in defiance of every hazard, with unabating firmness and perseverance, employ for the preservation of our liberties, being with our one mind resolved to die free men rather than live as slaves. Powerful words. But what is Jefferson saying is the basis of that freedom? He's saying it's God. And who is the basis of encouraging just to stand and revive these principles and make sure that we stand strong for them? Well, it's our leaning upon the providence of God in His divine favor. He has prepared us for such a time as this, as He did Esther and as He did Daniel. And Daniel gives credit to Jeremiah, by the way, for teaching him. We must admit that we are victors. Now, I believe that our current culture may be post-Christian, post-modern, neo-pagan. But that doesn't mean that the people as a whole are there yet. It doesn't mean the church has given up to secularism or that all believers have, been, have bent the knee. It just means that as we assess the circumstance in which we find ourselves, we must admit that our situation needs careful consideration and repositioning. We may not be to the point of being Christian dissidents, but it could be we're at the point of being, Christ, being part of the Christian resistance that is working behind the scenes to prevent our country from succumbing to self-inflicted tyranny. We must admit that we have given too much power to the imperial forces of our day who do seek to co-opt and control us, and that if we don't do something now, we could be headed for a devastating civil war when push comes to shove. But I believe in those who still believe in Jesus. And I believe God will help us rise and revive in the clarity of this moment. Because we see what, from the e because we see what form the evil tyrants are taking in our culture. And we can resist their influence in our lives as we still take full advantage of the tools that they have provided. Which I think God is the genesis of. 
Jesus reminds us, and many presidents encourage us to remember that we are but a nation, a city set on a hill that shines the light of freedom to all the world. And if our light goes out, what happens to freedom in the world? The source of that light is the temple. We are that temple because we shine the eternal truth of God through our lives, through our decisions, through our words. And the inalienable rights of God are that city that protect us. And for such a time as this, we are to be proactive, productive, and prosperous as Jeremiah encourages us to do so as we read last week. And that we are ever ready for the era of restoration that ushers in the second coming of Christ. Because we know, we know the law of sin fails. It has in every culture. And we know that if those imperial forces today who want to have power over us through the law of sin, we know eventually they will fail too. The question is, will we fail with them? Or will we rise up and will we revive our power and our strength that is given to us by the Lord and stand strong so that those who do realize they are in captivity will have guideposts and guidebooks and guidelines back home? We can't predict exactly what that looks like. But God promises us peace and prosperity and posterity will be ours because he says that's what he thinks about all the time for us. I know that it's easy for us prophets to always talk about how the sky is falling, the sky is falling. But today, I don't want to say that the sky is falling. I want to say that the city and the temple is rising. And that city and that temple is us, the church. And if there is any hope for our churches, we need to stand strong because there are some confused and compromised folks out in the churches that are falling into progressivism. And if we, have, if we stand strong and we continue to reason and we continue to love and we continue to show grace, many of them will come back home. And we need to stand strong for our clans, our families, because there's a division that's growing that will break our hearts if we don't stand up for what is true and right. And we have to remember that if God is for us, who can be against us? Stand strong for Him. And we must fight for the common good of our communities and stand strong for God's truth, His principles, His Judeo-Christian values in every aspect of our communities. Because there are people that will get lost in the war that need to find their way home. Sky is not falling. Church is rising. My prayer is that we will rise with it to save those in our culture who have gone captive into paganism. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful today for this opportunity to dig into your word. And I know that when we try to find some commonalities that there might be some jumps that we make, but today I want to just encourage all the folks who are here today to check everything that I've said, every verse that I've read, to check that against what the rest of your word says, to check the context to make sure that I was being handling the word accurately. 
Because the most important here thing, Father, is that we honor you, that we're built up in you, that we're strengthened in your truth so that we can stand strong against those evil forces, those evil imperial forces that are trying to allure us back into the law of sin. Help us to rise up, stand strong, to revive the law of the Spirit in our own lives. Set that example for everyone in our churches, in our clans, and in our communities so that they will be ready whenever you send your son the second time to call us all home. We want to get safely home. So help us to reposition ourselves in slavery right now. These positions of victory. And I pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And let all God's people say...